My name is Dario Hasenstab, I have two degrees in international affairs, and I'm here with Balder Hagritz, a former university professor of mine, as well as an IR consultant. And together, we're bursting the Western bubble. Today, we have our end-of-year episode, where just like last year, we will be handing out end-of-year awards called the Bubbles, based on the concept of the Western bubble. If you would like to know more about this concept, how this podcast started, or who we are, make sure to listen to our introduction episode. And just as last year, uh, we're having uh, our assistants, uh, researchers, uh, supporting us with the awards. Uh, this year, we have with us Yuji and Aston. Uh, Yuji, why don't you tell the listeners who you are and basically what you do for the Western Bubble? Hi, I'm Yuji from Singapore. I study international relations at IU University, and I help in order um, in terms of research as well as just doing one-minute short video for like YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. Perfect. Aston, uh, introduce yourself quickly. Yep. So just like Yuji, I'm also studying IR, and I help with the research for the episodes along with the um, vertical videos on the different social media platforms, and I'm from the U.S. And uh, don't worry, listeners, uh, dear listeners, we have not kicked Balder out. Balder, you're also here with us. <laughs> Hi Dario, good to have you and a huge welcome to Aston and UG, of course, wonderful to have you with us. Um, for, before we kind of begin with the awards, I quickly want to apologize for my voice. I went to a very exciting football game yesterday, so that might be a bit cracked. Um, this is a very good idea for when you record a podcast uh, the next day. Um, moving on to this year's awards uh, series, right? We had this uh, exact same format last year. However, we've tweaked some of the categories a little bit. And let me take a moment to quickly introduce them to you. So we will be having five categories where each of us will come with an individual case that we have prepared before. Um, we will present this case, we will discuss the case a little bit, and then we will vote and decide which of these four individuals uh, deserves the bubble. Uh, for that specific category for the year of 2023. The categories are the following. We have the bubble blooper. And these are unscripted moments in international affairs where you can clearly tell that uh, the person who said these statements wasn't really thinking about them or they kind of slipped out and therefore they are bloopers, but they show the true identity of the Western bubble. They show these true feelings. It's basically a Freudian slip. The next category, the second one, will be the bubble booster. These will be scripted moments, right? Where politicians, with having their speech writers, having their whole team behind them, basically go out to the world and make a statement. And <laughs> these statements really boost the Western bubble. Then the third category is going to be the bubble burster. And these will be individuals from within the Western bubble um, who will who basically made statements or had actions that kind of showed that they are bursting the Western bubble to a certain extent, and that they're kind of kicking the West back into reality. The fourth category, similar to last year, here will be a media category, namely the bubble blower. Here we will be focusing on news items, either in written form or in spoken form, that showcase the strongest Western bubble perspective and kind of really show what's wrong with the media amplifying the Western bubble. 
And then the last category, the fifth category, will basically be the Lifetime Achievement Award and it's called the Biggest Bubble. And here we will honor a person from within the Western bubble that really deserves to be highlighted for their actions and how they've worked on the Western bubble, sometimes for decades. Let's start with the first category, the bubble blooper, um, the biggest kind of unscripted moment that led to you know, an intensification of the Western bubble. Aston, um, who is your pick? Who did you, yeah, who did you bring for us today? So, uh, as an American, I thought it would be fun to start with somebody uh, from my country. So, I picked Vivek Ramaswamy, who, in one of the most recent Republican debates for the presidential nomination, said on the situation in Israel and Palestine that he would tell Netanyahu to smoke those terrorists on his southern border, and then uh, Ramaswamy would tell him, as president of the United States. I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. And just that he would say something like this, where he's conflating the situation in Gaza to a situation on the U.S. border with Mexico is kind of insane and shows how entrenched in the sort of Western bubble he is and how he, he can't help but relate things back to that. I mean, this is highlighting two aspects of the Western bubble at the same time, right? First, kind of like terrorism right we've talked about this in, in an episode before and at the same time immigration um something that is truly worth of a bubble and uh, on top of that ignorance right i mean that's always <laughs> fits into this category as well the the simply the the statements that are coming out of the republican fields in general show so much ignorance about the world in general and you know, there's nothing scarier than someone who's very convinced of their own Western superiority, but who actually very little knowledge about the realities of the world around them. See, um, moving on to my nomination, I have brought, well, someone or something, basically, and that person is Prishogin, the former leader of the Wagner Group. Um, and we've also recorded an episode on this, right, uh, where in June of this year, we had uh, the Wagner Group, right, a Russian mercenary group that is very active uh, in Ukraine, supporting uh, the, the Russian government in its in its war against uh, against Ukraine. And you could always tell that there was a bit of conflict between Prishogin and Putin, who used to be friends. And there was a lot of right struggle for power, particularly between Prishogin and the defense ministry. And suddenly, something within Prishogin snapped, and he ordered his troops to basically drive towards Moscow. And there was even some fighting along the way. Um, and the reason why I want to highlight this as a bubble blooper is because during his his basically road trip uh, from Ukraine to Moscow, Western media and the Western world in general was, was hyped, right? Oh, someone is taking down Putin. This is exciting. The evil Russian president who is fi who's fighting the poor Ukrainians, he will now be taken down by one of his own completely ignoring the reality of the situation, whether this is possible or not, and also ignoring whether Prishogin would be a better president than Putin, right? Particularly with regards to the war in Ukraine. So I'm, I'm nominating Prishogin here and his road trip to Moscow um, and the consequent reaction of the Western bubble to this. Yeah, absolutely, Dario. I remember this summer when I was traveling in the U.S. that it was everywhere in the news and you really couldn't avoid it. And uh, everybody was talking about it. But where is it now? It's it's gone. As a as as, as a general rule, though, we 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 tend to overhype things uh, these moments and we tend to underestimate uh, small incremental change. Right? This is something we've mentioned in the past as well. 
And this was one of those moments that all of our hopes seemed to come alive for a moment because we somehow secretly in the West believed that Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, can lead to somehow the downfall of Putin and then somehow then establish a liberal democratic Russia in, you know, like a, a new Switzerland. Whereas, of course, in reality, nothing like that's going to happen. And um, this was a action by essentially a desperate man who ran out of options. But that's not how we interpret it, because our deeper, if you like Freudian emotions, want it to be the start of this new era in Russia. And we haven't come to grips with the fact that not everyone wants to become like the West. Mm -hmm. Everyone was giddying with excitement. Oh, finally, Putin's going to fall down and he will be replaced by Prishogin, who's more extreme. Um, Balder, I think your nomination has also something to do with the war in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, these things like Ukraine and, and, and other big, big events in international relations show the Western bubble most clearly, right? Because that's when people... Let's face it, they go a little bit crazy sometimes. Um, and here, uh, someone you would think knows what he's doing. Uh, my nomination is Anders Falk Rasmussen, who uh, was NATO Secretary General. And uh, he came out, not so, I mean, he must have thought about this. This can't have been just a blooper or Freudian slip in that sense. But he came out with the idea that um, what NATO should do is accept the part of Ukraine where there's no fighting going on to become part of NATO. So we're going to divide Ukraine in two parts, one where there's fighting, where the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting on the border, and everything, every other uh, part of Ukraine where there's no fighting happening, and that should already become part of NATO. That would, and I'm quoting here, deter Russia from mounting attacks inside the Ukrainian territory, inside NATO, and so free up Ukrainian forces to go to the front line. So here you've got a NATO leader, former NATO leader, who actually believes that what he can do is just say, okay, this part of uh, Ukraine is still part of the war, so that can't be part of NATO because then NATO would be at war with Russia. But everything else can become part of NATO, and then Ukraine doesn't have to defend its territory there anymore, sending all the troops to the to the bit which isn't part of NATO yet. And the, the brain gymnastics that you have to go through to come up with a solution, and I use that word lightly here, um, for a situation like Ukraine is, is amazing. And it clearly shows that people are not thinking rationally anymore about how the world works. Uh, this incident in particular, right, dividing Ukraine and taking one part into NATO also reminded me of um, the EU accession talks uh, that were started with Ukraine, right? These, this idea that, oh, you know what, Ukraine, we, we can already start the accession talks because, I mean, let's be honest, the war is going to be over soon, right? That wishful thinking. And if not, I mean, we can just take in the nice part of Ukraine, right? The one where there's no war and fighting. Um, it's far removed from, from reality, but it really shows the ignorance within the West towards the fighting in Ukraine. And I mean, now we're, we're moving into the second year of the of the war soon, uh, in a few months' time, and uh, hundreds of thousands of people have died, and we're really just prolonging the suffering by now. Um, I mean, it's it, we're moving close to, to a World War One type of scenario where there are trenches and people are shooting at each other from one side to another. It's a lot of young people who are dying, um, and there's no progress being made on either side. 
And the West doesn't take responsibility for any of that destruction. So they, they throw these crazy ideas out there trying to keep the conflict going. But there's actually no response, sense of responsibility of, hey, hang on, we actually are encouraging the violence to continue. We're not actually looking for a closure. We're not looking for an end to the violence. Um, we are still kind of hoping, going back to your nomination, Dario, that somehow all of this will lead to Russia's collapse. Yeah, I think it is quite crazy to think that we can just simply ignore the reality of what is happening right now and divide the territory up like slices of cake where you can get what you want and what you don't want, you can just simply discard it. In reminiscence of the Berlin Conference, um, Yuji, shall we then move on to your nomination? Um, so we, we now have a U.S. Republican uh, nominee for the, or, or basically fight for the nomination for the presidential uh, race. We have uh, Brishogin on his way to Moscow. We have Rasmussen, uh, NATO, former NATO uh, Secretary General. Who did you bring for us? Um, for me, the biggest bubble blooper this year was how President Joe Biden caught Chinese President Xi Jinping a dictator right after their first face-to-face -face meeting in over a year. So if you have not seen the clip of how Secretary of State Anthony Blinken cringe at this moment, I definitely recommend searching it up. It is hysterical as you can almost see how months of hard diplomatic efforts to sort of bridge the gap between China and US totally collapsed after this conference. Yeah, this is where sometimes it's a bit unfortunate that a podcast is an uh, is basically an audio only medium, because this would be really worth to clip and basically show to all the listeners. And we will definitely link it in the post description below, where Biden is just saying, "Yes, of course, Xi Jinping is a dictator," and you can see Blink and really, I mean, I think the word you used is perfect there, cringed and said, "No, why did you do that? My poor, my hard work." Yeah, there's absolutely just total entrenchment from Joe Biden on that point of where he he can't escape uh, that mentality from from the 20th century of where the West and the good guys. And I think that that quote uh, and that blooper from from Biden really kind of shows it all. It, it fits his entire psychology, right? It, this was this was probably of the of the four, the most actual Freudian slip, right? It was it was essentially showing his inner emotions, despite having had productive meetings and all having had to play nice with each other. Uh, here comes his real feeling out. By the way, it also shows the, the problem with labels like that, right? As if the word dictator conveys any real meaning. I mean, it, it, it is basically an emotional, it's an emotional response to the Chinese system, but it has no analytical value to call someone a dictator or not. And with this, we have all of our four nominations. Um, we kind of talked over them before and we decided. The winner is Rasmussen. for deciding or proposing that, you know what, we could just uh, divide Ukraine. A round of applause for him. Um, any any thoughts on him winning? I mean, that's, that must be great for him, right? He's a retired NATO Secretary General. Um, I'm not sure whether he has so many things going on. So he's winning a bubble award from us. I think this prize goes to NATO in general, right? For being this enormous bubble machine. This is this is where I imagine him if he if he were here to accept the the words. By the way, 
why isn't he? But if he were here to accept the awards, he would basically go through a long list of all his friends in NATO in Brussels who he wants to thank. All right, let's let's then. Okay, so now, now that we're a bit more lighthearted about this, and to our listeners, yes, all right. I mean, so obviously we're not giving out real awards, uh, but I mean, this is a nice way of just recapping the year and also pointing out some of the craziness uh, in this world. And uh, we're living in a very serious world, but sometimes it does help to chuckle about them. Um, a, ser a category that is not that serious, right? Because a blooper category is kind of lighthearted and it's ah, fun, fun, fun. But uh, a more serious category is the next one, and that's the category of the bubble booster. Um, a bit of a more scripted moment, right? A, a stunt of a politician who decided, let me do something, let me go somewhere. And the first uh, nomination, Balder, uh, was already one of those stunts, right? Right. Here, my nomination is uh, Ursula von der Leyen, our great European leader, um, he says slightly sarcastically. Um, who went on a train to Ukraine in November, if I recall correctly. And uh, she came back with a whole list of statements and phrases about how quickly Ukraine had to enter the European Union, how close um, um, uh, Europe and the EU felt with Ukraine, how Zelensky was fighting the good fight. And basically, uh, this was such a clear moment of someone, in this case von der Leyen, being called up in her leadership role, being there to represent the European Union and believing that somehow by embracing Ukraine into everything that is European, she would play a historical part in, in, in the evolution of the war. And it was painful to watch especially because no serious analyst that I've ever spoken to believes that Ukraine is going to join the EU anytime soon. There's way too many obstacles of the, for that. So this was a case of symbolism of Ursula von der Leyen, probably believing her, her own words at that time, but no one taking her seriously and just seeing that the emperor has no clothes, right? That the West throws out these big statements but nobody, not even Kiev, believes that they are carrying any water, that they're, that they're any, anything serious to, you know, think about in the medium or long term. And I think this is really an excellent nomination to kick off the category because it really embodies what this category is about, right? It was a very well orchestrated and planned stunt to take a train to Ukraine, right? And then to thank even the, the Ukrainian Railway Association, uh, meet with Zelensky, basically officially kind of announced that, hey, there will be EU accession talks, which by the way, by now, I mean, have kind of been been halted a little bit because countries within the EU are definitely uh, disagreeing with this. I think also it's important to know with this whole taking a train into Ukraine thing, um, it's very much kind of a bubble thing because Joe Biden did the exact same thing, I think, last year or, or something like that, where you take a train into Ukraine and you talk to Zelensky and you talk about, oh, the future, what's going to happen and then what really comes from it, right? It's very uh, traditional of, of the bubble to do this sort of thing. This is a popular stunt. Yeah. But, 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 but by now it's an absolute must-do. I mean, uh, we talked about this recently in our, in our third episode on the United Kingdom, right, where one of the first acts of newly appointed uh, foreign minister or secretary of foreign affairs in, in the United Kingdom 
uh, the first thing he did was also take, I don't know if he took a train, but he also traveled to Ukraine, right? And Zelensky, Zelensky did him good, right? By basically putting him in front of flags in the presidential palace, making him feel all important, right? I mean, you have this every few weeks by now where some high-ranking official from the West is traveling to Ukraine. And um, I mean, I don't know whatever comes out of it, but there's there's a lot of images coming out of it. And that's definitely deserving of uh, of a bubble award there. And Aston, uh, who who did you bring for this wonderful category? So I brought Justin Trudeau as kind of representative of Canadian international relations politics this year, because uh, for those who aren't aware, there was a really serious international relations kind of disagreement between Canada and uh, India. And that was due to the killing of Hardeep Singh Najjar, who was basically a Khalistani independence activist, or he had been in the past, who is now leading a Gurdwara in Canada and was a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil was killed in a parking lot. And uh, Canada was accusing uh, Indian agents uh, with very uh, tacit support from the U.S. in this of killing him on Canadian soil. And that was kind of uh, really driving a wedge in Indian-Canadian relations. And, and it was all over the news, especially in the two countries and in the two regions. And then this was late September, early October, where this situation was happening. And then Israel was attacked on the 7th. And basically all this completely disappeared. And now both Canada and India, and India is not really in the Western bubble, but it's absolutely kind of a Western bubble thing to want to side with India and get India on your team because they're seen as a democracy. And the second that the attack on Israel happens, this goes away. And now they're both aligned in, in a foreign policy mission and there's this real wedge between the two countries that was very relevant to both countries is now an exchange because of Israel-Palestine, which is not a region either country is particularly involved in or particularly interested in. Uh, now they're both because it's, it's the Western bubble and they need to uh, rally around the flag and draw the wagons in. Now India and Canada, the tension seems to have basically disappeared because of, of this. Canada is fascinating in this, right, as a general country within the Western bubble, because it's sort of the friendlier, more philosophical partner of the United States, right? So when, whenever the United States positions itself aggressively, Canada comes in with its diplomatic language. And with and this was one case where, diplom where Canada really went beyond that and really put itself forward. Um, and you sort of saw, saw the real Canada underneath the friendly... Um, friendly facade if you like um moving on to the next nomination uh yuji who did you bring for this category i would like to nominate israel prime minister benjamin netanyahu for his attempts to keep news articles focusing on israel and like, the suffering that is happening as well as keeping the west interested in this whole conflict going and i feel like his desire for the west to keep supporting his sides and his action has to be recognized somewhere Right, it's it's absolutely essential for for Israel, uh, of course, and particularly for Netanyahu to keep the West on his side, um, right? To, to kind of have that support and have that safety net um, that in case something more serious were to happen, the West would stand by Israel's side, and also on an international stage, right? It's really important for Israel uh, in the United Nations Security Council um, to kind of have the United States there vetoing things, um, and in general just to have the Western world um, behind them, and he does this. 
Netanyahu does this very well, right, with the democracy, right? Democracy was attacked and all of this. And obviously, it's a very contentious topic. And uh, if you haven't listened to our three episodes, uh, please do so. And um, interestingly, my nomination for this category goes into a similar direction. And we actually, since October 7th, we've been witnessing a bit of a fight um, between Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, for attention of the Western bowl. Because let's be honest, the West can only ever focus on one topic at a time. Um, that's the reason why sometimes we're angry at China, sometimes we're angry at Russia, sometimes we're angry at terrorism. Um, but uh, here in this particular situation, you have the you have Netanyahu, right? And he captured all the attention, obviously, for a month. I mean, this was a really big topic. It was a really traumatic experience for Israelis. And then you have basically the reverse effect of now Israeli and an Israeli offensive against uh, against Hamas in Gaza, leading to a lot of um, humanitarian suffering there. And suddenly you have my nomination creeping up, uh, basically on the, on the international stage, and Zelensky is appearing again and even stating publicly that he's really concerned that the entire Israel situation is draining Ukrainian resources from the West, right? It's, first of all, draining attention, military support, financial support. And this then all culminated in when Zelensky uh, basically planned a visit to Israel and the Israelis you know, conveniently kind of leaked it to the press and there wasn't a real interest because if Zelensky comes to Israel, then you kind of have a bit of attention back on Ukraine and not on Israel anymore. So I think those two almost go hand in hand. This clearly shows both both these cases show the temporal aspect of Western attention, right? That in many ways, when the Western bubble gets um, actively engaged with foreign issues, with foreign policy, it is because of a popular wave among its own population and diplomats and leaders respond to that. Uh, it also shows that you, if you're the leader of Ukraine, um, maybe less so if you're the leader of Israel, but if you're the leader of Ukraine, you cannot bank on having this support for the long term because the West doesn't actually believe much of its narrative towards the outside world it very much is is deeply convinced that it is superior internally but when it comes to ukraine when it comes to israel when it comes to countries around the world um, the west doesn't have sufficient engagement and sufficient knowledge to keep it up for years um, and years and so here's my prediction for 2024 at some point something new is going to happen and that's going to take all the attention away from gaza and then after that, there will be something else taken to it. It's like a, sh a dog with a shiny object. Uh, the West very much behaves like that because they don't really know or care about the actual uh, violence and the actual conflict that's taking place around the world. Right. Uh, to Just to back up my nomination here a little bit, because I think this is best exemplified by Zelensky basically calling Hamas and Russia the same type of evil. Right. That's that, that's that's craving any form of attention. And I mean, you can see this even, uh, especially online, you can see the, the fight between these two, right? And you can see in, in when you go to a newspaper website now, any of them now, instead of Ukraine section being on, on the front page, now it's what's happening in Israel and Palestine that's on the front page. And maybe Ukraine is a couple uh, spots down, um, but now they kind of got to compete for that top spot. Um, for this category, we actually had so many nominations uh, that we decided to have a few honorable mentions. 
the first one, and I always promise uh, any foreign minister in particular that they have a two-year period in which I will not criticize them heavily. Um, this peer two-year period is now over for German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock. The government has now been in charge for two years. And I must say that um, what a terrible foreign minister uh, she is. She has managed to reverse basically decades of German foreign policy tradition of, well, we are Germany, we really messed up during the Second World War. So we are going to focus on soft power, we're going to so focus on conflict resolution, and we're not going to right, uh, basically toot the horn of the West too much, because we also have a very close uh, history with uh, particularly the East. And this has been completely reversed on uh, Russia-Ukraine, and this has also been reversed on Israel-Palestine to a certain extent. So uh, Annalena Baerbock unfortunately didn't make it uh, into our nominations, but I, I did feel like she needed to be highlighted for reversing German foreign policy and basically spiraling it into the Western bubble. I, I can vouch for the fact that there's hardly a week that goes by without Dario having a little rant about her. So uh, it's, it's only right and proper that we mention her here, right? Yep. Another uh, person we wanted to put into the honorable mention section was uh, yet another American presidential candidate who's probably not going to win. Um, but this one is Chris Christie. And basically, he gave a speech at, I believe, some, some donor event where he's trying to look very presidential. And he calls... Uh, America, absolutely indispensable nation, and he calls uh, China and Russia and Iran and North Korea and maybe another one, but I think that was the main for a new axis of evil, basically. And we also, just as in the past, uh, actually have the speech, uh, because it is all uh, audio only, uh, for our listeners to enjoy here. The argument in our party is about whether America is any longer the indispensable nation. What does that mean? We are the indispensable nation, not just to ourselves, but to the world. When moments like this happen, where does the world turn? And if America does not answer the call, who will? Well, what a speech, Boulder, right? That's a, that's a presidential speech right there. Well, in many ways, following the Republican debate uh, is entertainment until you remember that this is one of the two major parties of the most powerful nation on earth. And then it doesn't become haha funny anymore. Of course, what Chris Christie is doing here is catering to his uh, electorate. He's trying to get the nomination. This is a speech aimed at Americans, not aimed at the world. But the fact that you can still say these things that you're saying, still pretending that the United States is there like the shiny light on the hill for the rest of the world to follow. And if the world doesn't follow, then they will be thrown into the Chinese darkness somehow. Is of course, very indicative of how deep some segments of the West are still in their bubble and how, how far away they are from actual reality because the rest of the world listens to this and thinks, what are you going on about? Absolutely. What are you going on about? And that's what we thought for all four nominations, but there's only one winner. And that winner um, is Justin Trudeau. And Canadian politics. Applause for Justin Trudeau for finally making Canadian politics relevant. It only took a complete 180 on, on his foreign policy, uh, pivoting right back into the Western bubble to do so. 
And from this, let's move on to the next category, to the third category, the category of the bubble burster. Someone who saw through the Western bubble or simply had to accept reality as it is, that the West is no longer the strongest force out there and that the rest of the world is actually starting to turn away and say, dear West, this is none of our business. Please keep that to yourselves. And uh, let me actually start here with Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, who... Um, despite his right, his, his European citizenship, uh, he's Portuguese, and despite some of his more pro-European acts as a Secretary General in the last uh, few years, has actually been, for me personally, surprisingly bursting of the Western bubble uh, with regards to Israel-Palestine. Right, very early on, he called for. I mean, he he condemned obviously the acts of Hamas and the massacre that they committed, but then also very quickly basically jumped to the aid of Palestinians who, right, were not receiving any any form of food, fuel, or or water aid uh, after the blockade from Israel, and has been really rallying for humanitarian right humanitarian corridors, humanitarian solutions, the protection of hospitals and refugee camps. And even a few days ago, went as far to invoke Article ninety nine of the uh, of the basically well of the United Nations Convention, um, calling for an immediate ceasefire in there, and actually bringing this to United Nations Security Council for all parties to vote in favor, except the Western bubble, uh, basically champion the United States. But for me, it 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 is important to kind of compliment uh, Antonio Guterres on this for actually managing right to resist the pressure that the West certainly must have put onto him and call for that immediate uh, ceasefire. Basically, right, doing the right thing for humanity and saying, "Hey, there's 2.3 million people there. Let's maybe let's maybe be a bit more careful with where we drop bombs and how we drop them, and let's make sure that they have some safe haven uh, to go to." It should be pointed out that the UN has always, um, if, if you're drawing this line between pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli, has been more on the pro-Palestinian side. That's a historical fact. For Mostly because the power, international power base of Israel is the West. And if you look outside of the West, there's actually much more sympathy for the Palestinian cause and much more skepticism about Israel in general around the world. And that is reflected within the UN. So in many ways, he is voicing the concerns and the behavior of his own constituency, right, of the United Nations. But he do, does so very actively and more aggressively than he needs to. And yeah, it's good to give him credit for that. Mm. Um, let's move on to the next nominations. A nomination that also goes into the direction of the West, kind of being isolated a bit on the world stage and no longer being in charge in certain areas of the world. Yeah, so one year where that was very, very apparent, uh, or one area where that was very apparent this year is in the Sahel, right? Specifically in Niger, where the new uh, leader of the military junta who um, accrued the previous government, Abdul Rahman Tichani, basically told all the French soldiers there, hey, you guys are going to be leaving now. And this was kind of because. Uh, Bursting the Western bubble because France still has this idea that it gets to exert influence in its African colonies and have bases there and soldiers there and intervene there. And now the new Niger government is like, no, let's let's not do that. You guys cannot be here anymore. We're going to put a pin in your bubble and you guys can go home and stop doing your neocolonialism on us. And a similar development uh, to this, right, where the West kind of got shown that you are no longer in charge here. Yes, you are still have some of the strongest militaries in the world, 
but you are, first of all, no longer willing to use it, especially not in the way that you did 20 years ago, where you really started to, to mess up. Um, another case where this happened was in Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. Yeah, so this is my nomination um, to specifically put a name on it. It's uh, Nikol Pashinyan, who is the prime minister of Armenia and who, since his... Um, um, his becoming uh, prime minister in 2018 has been very clearly steering towards the West and away from Russia internally. He uh, very much uh, sees himself as a liberal, if you like, a neoliberal leader who looks uh, at Armenia as having a future within the West, potentially even within NATO, um, within glo global organizations dominated by the West. That basically meant that Armenia lost its support mechanism from Moscow. And what you see is that Azerbaijan, um, their long-term rival of Armenia, used that moment to basically move in and to end a 30 years long conflict of uh, surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh, the enclave of Armenia within Azerbaijani territory. Now, what is particularly interesting here is not so much that Armenia, by losing the support of Russia, um, lost its defense mechanism against Azerbaijan. But it's that the West had absolutely no answer to this. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to position themselves. They didn't know um, if they should even make any diplomatic statements, because technically this all happened within Azeri, Azerbaijani territory. Uh, and it shows that even if you're a very clear pro-Western leader, outside of the West, you cannot rely on Western support. And Pashinyan uh, clearly got this message loud and clear and, and learned this the hard way. And, and I think exemplary of this is uh, the European Union <clears throat> sending observers uh, to, to Nagorno-Karabakh a few months ago and basically uh, celebrating this as a huge diplomatic win uh, to maybe assure some right, humanitarian uh, goods uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh through right, occupied territory uh, of, of, of Azerbaijan. And that celebration then came to a very prompt halt when Azerbaijan simply said, well, this is now going to be our... Right, our little special military operation. I think the the wording was very similar to the wording of Putin, um, and and went in there. The, the result was a hundred to hundred fifty thousand refugees from Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenians who then uh, had to flee to Armenia. But to be honest, since then we haven't heard about it. Um, it's basically it's it's done, right? I mean, the West has lost interest. The West has lost power. So it's done business for the West. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in terms of Nagorno-Karabakh, you can see it's almost uh, brings a similarity back to what I was talking about with with uh, Justin Trudeau and how there was a, a whole uh, international relations debate between India and Canada and then Israel and Palestine happened and it kind of went away. That's almost a similar situation to what happened in Armenia and in Nagorno-Karabakh is that that was happening in late September, early October, and uh, the West very quickly lost interest when, when something else happened. Yuji... Who uh, is your nomination for this category? Well, um, although the bubble is proven by uh, many episodes in this podcast can be quite hard to burst, I would like to nominate French President Emmanuel Macron for his recent comments on Europe's take on Taiwan. He was quoted as saying, and I quote, The question we need to answer as Europeans is the following. Is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. 
the worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the US agenda and a Chinese overreaction. And I thought this nicely burst the bubble of thinking that the Western bubble will think that you can control every part of the world and it's their responsibility to be in each and every crisis and to make sure that things don't happen. Sometimes stepping back might be a good way to solve things as well. What was fascinating about this is the enormous reaction afterwards when he said that, right? The 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 the, the hatreds that he got for suggesting that 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 Europe should actually probably just also try to do business with the second largest economy in the world, and that maybe they don't need to take a position on everything all the time. Uh, and his words were taken out of complete context. People said, "Oh, you don't care about uh, free liberal Taiwan anymore. You don't care about anything else." Uh, in many ways, his words seemed quite reasonable, and the reaction against those words showed how deep people are still very much dug into the bubble. Very much dug into the bubble. Um, however, when when it comes to who burst the bubble the most, uh, the decision we've made is Antonio Guterres. Because I think you can really commend him for um right for for kind of stepping up at the united nations uh particularly in this environment where the west is very very much lobbying uh kind of for for israel here and particularly the united states i'm sure he did not uh win any friends over from the west here and i think we can actually commend him for this moving on to the next category and this is the one right and uh, our right at the our very long-term listeners will notice uh, that I like to criticize uh, the media uh, a lot, particularly for the Western bubble thinking. Eugene, uh, um, there was one article that, uh, right, that you, you basically sent to us in preparation for this episode uh, that really shines through here. Um, what was that article about? What's your nomination? So I'm nominating this article written by The Economist titled Only America Can Save Israel and Gaza from the Greater Catastrophe for its take on this raging conflict in the Middle East, which screams white savior complex and Western idealism to the fullest, that only America can be the saving person for Israel and Gaza conflict, which does not help to resolve the conflict or give any potential solutions. It's just the whole idea that, yes, the West and America is the big savior. White savior complex all over again. And I mean, this is exactly, you know, that, that sort of article you'd think would be it's almost reminiscent of the the idea of the transatlantic alliance, right? Because Britain is in a special relationship because The Economist is a British institution, right? British uh, newspaper. And here they are writing about, you know, America in, in incredibly favorable and positive ways. I don't think you'd ever get an American publication writing about the UK in that way. And you see this pattern quite a lot, right? Where the the analysis is about us, the West, the United States, Europe, so somehow being the good guys completely ignoring the past 80 years where the United States has played an enormous role in this conflict and hasn't been able to solve anything. In fact, I think it, there's a very obvious case to be made that they've exacerbated the conflict with their foreign policy. So ignoring the past and just waking up today and thinking, hey, the United States, surely they are, they are a source for good and they are a source for solutions is um, an incredible example of bubble thinking. I mean, the part from the article that best right, shows how deep in the in the Western bubble the author is, is the sentence where it says, Iran 
Russia and China are profiting from the mayhem, right? So there's a there's a terrible crisis happening in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza. And yeah, of course, the Chinese, right? The Chinese are the ones who are winning here the most. And the Russians, of course, of course, they're benefiting from it hugely. And Iran, obviously, right? Let's let's not talk about the suffering on on uh, right on the ground. Let's talk about the battles that the West has created itself. And let's talk about the enemies that the West holds most dearly. And these are the ones that are obviously benefiting from this humanitarian catastrophe that we're really using to kind of drive the uh, the emotional component home. And they are um, and they are big, right? They are the big enemies, and they are benefiting from this the most. Um, Aston, can you compete with this type of Western Bubble article? I, I I can try. So my article comes from it's a piece released by the Brookings Institute, and specifically I'm going to uh, nominate the part by Tom Stefanik, who basically was writing about the AUKUS alliance between Australia, UK, and the US. If you remember a few years ago, there was the whole debacle with the nuclear submarines that kind of uh, launched this, and he said basically that. Uh, was comparing China to the Soviet Union, which is the favorite thing to do of the Western bubble. And he says, in the 1980s, there was a lively public debate in the United States about the merits of threatening Soviet ballistic missile submarines. Australia should engage in a similar public discussion since their attacks, submarines and crews may someday be operating in the same waters as Chinese strategic weapons. This is very bubble think because um, Australia, why would Australia, why would it be in their interest to have their missile submarines threatening their largest trading partner by far and a country that their economy is entirely dependent on instead of uh, in favor of an alliance with, with the U.S., who is much far away and a much smaller trading partner for them? I, I still would very much like to hear a Australian foreign policy analyst explaining this exactly, right? Explaining how it is possible that 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 there's this disconnect between reality that everyone can see and the psychology behind it. Absolutely. Um, there is another, right, there's another case, and that's the case I'm bringing, where I, I don't need a foreign policy analyst, I need a psychologist uh, to explain what this journalist was thinking. Uh, because also this year, I mean, something that we haven't talked about on the Western bubble because it's not necessarily international relations, uh, we had the Women's World Cup uh, in football uh, taking place in Australia. Um <clears throat> Right. And uh, as, as always, right, all the nations kind of come together, play football, and you're kind of really happy to just right see, see different teams compete against each other. And it's just a nice little break from international relations. And you would really hope that you can have that form of escapism somewhere. Not for the captain of the Moroccan national women's team, uh, because she was sitting at a press conference expecting harsh questions about, I don't know, tactics and uh, the current mood in the Moroccan team. And then we had a reporter from the BBC asking her this. For Ghislaine Shabak, um, in Morocco, it's illegal to have a gay relationship. Um, do you have any gay players in your squad? And what's life like for them in Morocco? Sorry, um, this is a very political question, so we'll just no, stick to political. questions it's related just, to no, football, no, no, no. please. It's, it's about people. Thank you. to do with politics. Please, please let her answer the question. It's astonishing to me that um, you would use this platform to kind of further your agenda here, right? I mean, first of all, he says, hey, it's illegal to be gay in Morocco. 
But do you have any gay players on your team that you would out right now, right? Because I mean, it's so it's so easy, and then rightfully so, uh, the media, right, the, the media person of the Moroccan national team kind of says, "Hey, we're not going to take any questions on this. Let's please talk about football." And then he basically kind of still shouts into room, "Yeah, but it's about people, not politics." How ignorant can you be, right? Like ignorant with regards to the customs and traditions of a team, ignorant with regards to this, the women's team who just who wants to play football and you kind of bring politics into this. And, and it's just so much ignorance in that statement. Yeah, definitely just ignoring the whole context. It is crazy to see how like the BBC news reporter completely missed the whole context coming into this, talking about like the women's soccer cup. And so I think it is absolutely, it's just insensitive and rude to ask someone to also just tell on their teammates, like in front of the whole national public television, like how is that possible, like rude media questioning? There's there are a number of factors here coming together. There, 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 there's the, the, the social debate that, is, that exists within the West is now being exported to this World Cup and to Morocco. So, hey, we've got a debate here about gay rights. We've got a conversation about how we want to organize our society. And because we are the West and because we know um, what is right and what is wrong, now everyone has to be part of this debate, even the, the people in Morocco. And then the complete lack of sensitivity towards the reality of this football player and uh, the setting in which this happens is absolutely astounding. And it's a brilliant example of the Western bubble. It's oh you you don't have gay rights in Morocco so you know if I asked this heroic question um, about the Moroccan women national team this will spark a debate and maybe even spark protests and this will change the rights of the of the gays in Morocco yeah good job journalist you are the savior of the people right I mean let right let this come from from down below there's no need to kind of tell from above, whack your finger at Morocco and basically say, oh, you know what, you now need to ha need to start this conversation instead of just just letting it happen naturally. Do you know what? I don't even know if, if, if the journalist, obviously I can't look into his mind, but if he had this big, big grandiose vision, it could very well be just an automatic assumption that it is his duty to bring this up wherever he goes, right? It is, it is so being filled with Western thoughts and western um, arrogance that that the whole bigger question of what he's actually doing with uh, morocco never crossed his mind he believes that uh, gay rights are important by the way so do i so do we all i assume here in this in this call um uh, and that's the only thing that matters and there needs to be no sensitivity towards cultural differences or just the fact that you're here in the sports arena where this is not about politics no 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 It needs to be pushed out. Again, such is such a good example of how we are brainwashed into thinking into certain patterns. But Balder, remember, it's it's not about politics, it's about people. <laughs> Sorry, Aston, I forgot to see that. <laughs> exactly. It's always about the people. Um, Balder, which person or which people are you bringing for your nomination? Well, I, I, I must admit that in this case, uh, the first thing was the topic and then i just shoehorned in this 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 article but there were plenty of examples to choose from um i obviously wanted to talk here at the end of 2023 about the beginning of 2023 where 
the world, certainly the Western world, went crazy for a few days when it came to Chinese spy balloons. The story of a Chinese balloon floating, drifting into U.S. airspace. Um, supposedly it was headed to Hawaii, but then it got off course and it um, crossed uh, into mainland USA. And the insanity and the sort of almost the panic around that, oh no, the Chinese are spying on us, was fascinating to behold. Because of course, the United States and Europe are spying on the Chinese and the Russians are spying on the Chinese and the Chinese are spying on others. There's nothing new about that. The use of balloons is nothing new. But there was this enormous hype and that led to an awful lot of bad articles being written. And um, it was very easy to find um, examples of the Western bubble in this topic. The one that I chose is from Jill Goldenziel, who is a reporter journalist for Forbes. And uh, she has an article called uh, The Chinese Spy Balloon is Down, Now the Fallout Begins. And it is full of those little phrases that show Western, if you like, arrogance and, uh, and, and, and delusion. And very specifically, uh, she writes, if China intentionally sent a trial balloon when it did, its tactics are reminiscent of its use of lawfare, lawfare elsewhere, exploiting U.S. law-abidingness in order to advance its own strategic aims, end quote. So here she suggests that, oh, the only reason why, the, why China can do this and send this evil, horrible balloon towards, uh, towards us is because we are peaceful, law-abiding uh, citizens, the United States is a law-abiding country that doesn't fight back. And I wish that we would fight back a little bit more. I mean, we recorded, I think, a very nice episode on this, right? We went through the different scenarios of what could be happening with these balloons and what's the situation. Because, I mean, ultimately it was only one balloon. But remember the first few, like the first few weeks of 2023, where basically everyone started looking into the, into the sky and started seeing weather balloons, right? Legitimate weather balloons. And then uh, to poor U.S. Um, US Air Force had to send up a fighter jet each time to check out whether it's, is it a domestic weather balloon? Is it something of a, of a private citizen? Uh, what's happening with all these, with all these spying weather Chinese balloons, right? That was absolute craziness. However, I think none of this craziness uh, trumps uh, the f uh, basically the winner of this category. And this is uh, the article that Yuji brought. Because, hey, let's be honest, the worst thing about the situation between Israel and Palestine at the moment is that Russia, China and Iran are benefiting so much and that the West is really losing out here. Applause for the, art, for the author of this article. This is unbelievable. Um, let's move on to the last category. And this is the Lifetime Achievement Award. The best bubble, basically. And here we have a few uh, very good nominations. Um, however, I think there's two very strong favorites. Um, Balder, you're not starting necessarily with a person, but you're starting with people. Uh, 17 million, to be, uh, to be exact. Well, actually, that's not the exact number. I'm talking about my own lovely people in the Netherlands, my fellow Dutch citizens. Uh, I um, met... A couple of people here in Spain over the past uh, few months who come from the Netherlands. None of them were even aware of the Dutch airstrike on Hawija in 2015, where over 100 Iraqis lost their lives. Uh, this was done by Dutch F-16s. I've talked about it quite a bit in the podcast. I also talk about it at university quite a bit. 
because it is such an example of the Dutch population being completely blind to its own foreign policy. The US government, uh, the US government puts an awful lot of pressure on the Netherlands to participate in military operations. The Netherlands um, goes along with that in Iraq, in Libya, in uh, Syria, and uh, in Afghanistan. Um, as a result, the Netherlands is responsible for significant loss of civilian life throughout the world. The most egregious example recently is this Havija case of 2015. And Dutch people have no clue about it whatsoever. Uh, the Dutch population believes their country to be a uh, force for good, to be peaceful, to, to be kind to others, and has no idea of the damage that Dutch F-16s and the Dutch military is inflicting across the world. If there isn't a better example of a bubble than that, I don't know what that would be. Right, and, and let me take this opportunity to um, to add to those 17 million Dutch people, let's, let me add uh, 83 million Germans, um, because we have a very similar uh, situation where in 2010 in Afghanistan, uh, close to Kunduz, uh, the, the German uh, Air Force dropped uh, two, two uh, 500-pound bombs on two trucks filled with fuel, uh, leading to an explosion, killing 91, at least 91 civilians. Uh, those are the ones we know of, where, I mean, at least the German government apologized and paid reparations. But if you ask the average German right now uh, about this, I'm sure that out of the 83 million people, very few will, will still remember this and still be able um, to talk about this. So, um, yeah, let's have 100 million uh, Europeans <laughs> basically nominated in this category. You can probably also add another uh, over two, 300 million Americans as well uh, onto that count of not being able to know what their countries have bombed and not bombed in in afghanistan and in iraq and it's it's fascinating because they are all convinced that china and russia are the bad guys okay russia started a war in ukraine fair enough but china hasn't had any military operations killing civilians over the past 30 years and somehow in our minds in germany in the united states and in the netherlands when we walk down our streets we think of china as this menace to the world and we believe ourselves to be this force for good, making the world a better place. And it is so, so far away from reality. Ask all those literally hundreds of thousands of families who lost their loved ones because of Western foreign policy. Ask them how they feel about this. Somehow we are so deeply caught up in our bubble that we, um, that we don't have any understanding of how the world outside of the West operates. And this is uh, very closely connected to my um, nomination. And that person is a familiar one to avid Western Bubble listeners. That is Simon Tistel, a writer on foreign policy for The Guardian. Um, we've picked him apart already in two episodes, uh, which, um, and I'm happy to say this, are basically the two highest ranking videos if you Google Simon Tistel uh, on YouTube. <clears throat> So he's my nomination for time and time again, giving Balder and me a reason to send each other a WhatsApp message with his article and just lose our minds over how deeply, deeply ingrained the Western bubble is within him. So uh, Simon Tistel uh, receives my nomination. Um, Eugene, uh, who, who do you nominate? Is it also a British person? Well, guess it, who it is. So I would like to nominate the former UK Prime Minister Liz Truss for this award. As surprising as it is, her 49 days in office left her deeply inspired to write a new book titled 10 Years to Save the West. 
In this, she warns against authoritarianism and the threat from adopting fashionable ideas propagated by the global left. She also argues why Renard Rogan and Margaret Thatcher should remain as the guiding lights for conservatives on both sides of the Atlantic. And it is crazy. I can't wait for the book to be out. I would definitely get a copy myself just to see the kind of things that she will be writing. Very inspired by her premiership. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, again, avid Western Bubble listeners will know that Liz Truss is a crowd favorite uh, and a podcast favorite um, from us. Uh, we have we've recorded uh, plenty of episodes on her uh, during her 40, 49 days in office. And uh, trust me, there will be an episode where we will be reading from her book in 2024 once it's published. Um, I'm really looking forward to to reading this book and seeing how we can save the West. I wish there was a video of the moment where Yuji told Dario about the existence of this book. I've never seen him so happy and excited in my life. Absolutely spot on, right? I, the fact that I didn't know that she was writing a book surprised me because right, I have a Google alert counter on hers um, that always tells me, okay, what's the next crazy thing that she does? But um, there's uh, one more person uh, that, we, that we at least need to talk about for a nomination. Um, Aston, who are you bringing to the table? I don't think it would be fair to give a lifetime award to somebody who has not lived a very long life uh, in the Western bubble. And there's nobody who's lived a longer life in the Western bubble than my own president, Joe Biden. Uh, he's already appeared on the list once when he called Xi Jinping a dictator. But I think that his his many years of service to the Western bubble arising from, from a mere member all the way to the leader of the free world, uh, that's been his dream for a very long time. He's wanted to lead the Western bubble, and uh, now he's doing it. He's bringing the Western bubble mindset right back uh, into the forefront, and and he is very happy there. And so I think that he is very deserving, especially considering a lifetime award, Liz Truss, Tisdall. Uh, they are people who they have a, they have a long future in for them. Joe Biden, we can be less less sure about that. So I think that that we need to get it in before before it's too late. Make him feel recognized, basically, Aston. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's been he's been going for a long time. He wanted to be the president, so we might as well just save the best for last with him. Absolutely, and I can already uh, tell you that Joe Biden wins. He wins this category, and with this, we basically end uh, the Western Bubble uh, Awards. I think uh, we we picked some some great winners uh, just to to recount them very quickly. The biggest bubble blooper was uh, Rasmussen, the for former. Uh, NATO Secretary General, who proposed a plan to simply divide Ukraine and have the Western part added to NATO already, and the other part where there's still fighting left, well, that one can, can join later. Then we have the winner of the bubble booster, uh, Justin Trudeau, for going 180 degrees on his foreign policy, uh, where first he was <clears throat> a bit unhappy with India, and as soon as India and Canada were standing on the same side in, Israel, uh, in the Israel-Hamas conflict, Justin Trudeau suddenly uh, couldn't remember the troubles uh, that he went through. Then, who was the big, biggest bubble burster? Was Antonio Guterres, uh, the Secretary General of the United Nations, for, in my opinion, given the pressure the Western bubble can exercise on someone like him in his position, 
for being very courageous uh, in that sense to actually put uh, right um, a resolution to to the vote in the United Nations Security Council of calling for a ceasefire, an immediate ceasefire uh, in in Gaza. And then we have the biggest bubble blower uh, here, the article, only America can save Israel and why Russia, China and Iran are benefiting uh, from the Israel-Hamas conflict. And then we have the biggest bubble, and this one is obviously going to Joe Biden for at least 60 years of service to the Western bubble. I think when we sum up this year, uh, there was a lot of Ukraine, uh, a lot of nominations were about Ukraine, there was a lot of Israel-Palestine. Um, because those were simply the the two dominating topics of this year. I truly hope that next year we might be able to have more nominations, or maybe just 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 less less sad topics. Maybe more about Biden calling Xi Jinping a dictator, and less about so many people dying. Um, this seems like a great moment to end today's uh, well or this year's awards episode. If you have any questions, comments, or regards, make sure to send us an email to thewesternbubble at gmail.com and we will try to incorporate them in our following episodes. Thank you very much to the listeners for joining us today. Make sure to join us again next year when we burst the Western Bubble. Also, thank you very much to Aston and UG for your great work this year for the Western Bubble and for your participation in today's episode. That is it from my side. Balder, which closing quote did you pick for us today? Well, let me first join you in thanking Aston and UG for being here and for doing all your hard work behind the scenes. It's amazing to have you with us. And um, I have a quote here from another huge Western bubble, um, if you like, Winston Churchill, who is always a great source for quotes, but also, of course, very much part of this Western mentality. And he um, wrote, this is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Mm -hmm.